Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. We realise more than two weeks has elapsed since we were last with you, but following the impeccable logic of the President of the United States, if you only count two of the three weeks that have elapsed since the previous episode, we are still a fortnightly podcast, and we will sue you if you say otherwise. Finally, on that subject, though the vote has still not yet been fully counted and litigated, we do anticipate welcoming Mr. Trump as a regular reader once he retires on his $219,000 a year presidential pension. On to more prosaic and indeed local matters, on the show this week, local government pension scheme administering authorities have been put in an awkward position by the Treasury, whose new cap on exit payments seems to contradict existing LGPS regulations. We'll ask why and what can be done about that. Then, a proposed bill from the campaign group Share Action has been presented to members of Parliament. Amongst its many climate-boosting provisions would appear to be a law establishing a fiduciary duty between trustees and wider society. We'll ask whether that characterisation is fair, and if so, what its implications are. Finally, in an apparent bid to disprove the suggestion all they do is bang on about independence, SNP MP has tabled an amendment at the end of last month designed to tackle the Section 75 debt conundrum. Will they be successful? Well, we'll shortly see. I'm Benjamin Mercer, I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Alison Murray, partner and head of public sector actuarial at Aon, and Anna Taylor, counsel at law firm Linklaters. Thank you both very much for joining me. Beginning then with the almost migraine-inducing contradiction recently imposed upon local government pension schemes, uh, the Treasury has pressed ahead with its cap on exit payments for public sector employees, which came into force last week. It includes strain costs, which are incurred when a member is allowed to retire early on grounds of efficiency, redundancy, or otherwise with the consent of the employer. Uh, But the crux of the problem is that whilst under the Treasury's new rules, members would be entitled to an immediate but reduced pension should they be made redundant, existing and unamended LGPS regulations entitle them to immediate and unreduced pensions. Alison, you brought this to my attention last week. Uh, Many thanks for that. Uh, Kick us off, if you will. How can it be that members made redundant to entitled both the reduced and unreduced pensions at the same time? Uh, Very good question. And I think the crux of it is we're not sure that they can. So this has come about since government announced its policy intention some five years ago to cap the amounts that get paid out to public sector workers on termination of employment. Uh, And there's been a couple of consultations over that period. But in the end, Treasury has pressed ahead with its own regulations, which implement this new cap so that, as you say, the total payments to workers on exit can't be more than £95,000. But unfortunately, despite the initial intention that the LGPS regulations um, would be amended alongside the Treasury regulations, MHCLG is slightly behind the curve and its consultation is still ongoing. So, as you say, we have a position where public sector employers are not permitted to make exit payments of more than £95,000, including the cost of paying pensions unreduced. And at the same time, the LGPS regulations are very clear that on redundancy or efficiency early retirement, if you're age 55 or more, you will have an unreduced pension. It's not a choice for the member at the moment in the LGPS regulations. It's just that is what happens. And so we have these two pieces of legislation that are very clearly in conflict and not compatible. NHCLG are consulting, as you said, on the proposed changes to LGPS regulations. And I assume legal challenges are the only way to settle this in the interim. But how soon can we expect uh, the LGPS regulations to, to come into line with the Treasury regulations? So the consultation closes on the 18th of December. 
and the expectation is that the regulations will be enforced perhaps January, February next year. It's very hard to see them coming in any earlier than that. So there is going to then be a period of a few months during which this incompatibility exists. And the the Scheme Advisory Board, uh, which is a national board which uh, aims to provide advice to MHCLG as a regulator in charge of the regulations, but also to help administering authorities, the scheme managers who administer the LGPS locally, it has been very concerned with this incompatibility and it has taken its own advice, its QC's opinion. And that opinion doesn't seem to be entirely in line with government's position, which is that the HMT the exit cap regulations override the LGPS regulations through this process of implied repeal, which is a legal concept and not something on which I'm particularly expert. But the QC's opinion seems to be that it's not clear that the government can rely on that. And the Scheme Advisory Board's view seems to be that this is only really going to be settled by a legal challenge in the courts. And it is trying to support administering authorities in deciding what to do to sort of the best of the worst case scenario and actually find a way of minimising the the effect of any legal challenge in terms of their actions now for any members who are being made redundant. Uh, Presumably this comes at quite a difficult time because, you know, it does affect this question of redundancies. And if employers are looking to restructure their workforce, for example, because of the tough economic times that we're in, uh, presumably that does make their job much more difficult if they don't know uh, what pension they owe to whom. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've had one or two reports of councils rushing through uh, redundancies to get people out before the 4th of November, you know, waiving notice periods and all sorts to try and avoid the cap. But there are others who are in the process and sometimes these agreements with uh, employees are made months in advance. So there will be discussions going on now uh, for those who won't actually be released from their employment until possibly up to next March. And when it's not clear what the benefits will be, inevitably members will be a lot less keen to put themselves forward. Councils generally want to run redundancy programmes on a voluntary basis and if they don't get the volunteers that's potentially going to put workplace reforms at risk. And although the Treasury, we've recently had Treasury directions and guidance which set out circumstances in which a waiver may be applied and one of those circumstances if they would significantly inhibit urgent workplace reform but even with that if a, if a council wants to try and apply that waiver the whole council full council has to make the decision they've then got to put together a business case it's got to go through MHCLG and then ultimately treasury so my impression is that government is not keen that that waiver process is well used and therefore it's not clear how easy it will be for councils to actually make use of it in practice and has this just come about then by almost a miscommunication between departments and government, do you think? I mean, is there a reason why the Treasury didn't time this to coincide with the end of, of the COG's consultation? That's a very good question. Not keen to get particularly drawn into the politics of it, but I, I suspect there was just pressure given that the policy announcement was made, what, some five years ago to kind of get on with it. And therefore, you know, Treasury pushed forward with its regulations. Um, And it's worth noting that the LGPS is slightly unusual in the public sector in having these very sort of firm provisions that if members are made redundant and they're over age 55, they will get an immediate pension. So I don't think it affects the other public service schemes in quite the same way. And to be fair to MHCLG, they have had a huge amount on their plate. And I presume it's just that they weren't able to get their regulations out for consultation quickly enough. Uh, Moving on now to share action. Uh, In conjunction with 
the uh, Nobel Gong holding economist Oliver Hart and Sir Ed Davey, leader of the Liberal Democrats and chair of the all-party parliamentary group on sustainable finance. Thankfully, nobody else, otherwise I'd have run out of breath saying all that. They presented a bill to said APPG last week. Uh, Among other things, it looks to increase transparency in the field of ESG by mandating that funds labelled default or sustainable must be tied to Paris climate uh, targets. But perhaps more boldly, they also set out a proposed new legal duty for trustees. Whilst at present, trustees' duties are to act in the best interests of their scheme and its members, and this is usually interpreted in financial terms, the Share Action Bill would expand the definition of best interests to include broader environmental and social considerations. So, Anna, if I begin with you for this one, um, the standard they evince is, they call it double materiality. That would presumably have quite big potential implications for trustees, wouldn't it? How big a change would this be from their existing duties? I think this would be a a real departure from where we are now. At the moment, as you say, when trustees are exercising their investment powers, they're they're primarily concerned with financially material factors. So they're, they're thinking about what's material in the context of this investment and how am I going to take those factors into account with my aim of of providing the benefits that have been promised under the scheme. So it's about using that power for the purpose for which it's been given, which is the provision of scheme benefits. There's been a lot of work done over past years in sort of setting out what the parameters of that are, because there was for a time a view that that meant that trustees needed to sort of go out and maximise returns and they could focus on returns to the exclusion of anything else that might matter. We've now reached a position where I think the broad consensus is that it's not just about returns anymore. Trustees can think about other things as well, as long as they're financially material. And what that means is things like climate change and the impact on the economy and markets and those kinds of things. Trustees can think about when they're deciding how they want to invest and and what they want to do with scheme money. What this bill does is it takes the existing formulation of fiduciary duty and sets out what things trustees should be thinking about when they're making those decisions. And one of the things included in there is benefit in a more more broad term than just how do we provide the benefits under the scheme. It becomes sort of broader considerations about society and the community in which we live. And I can understand the argument. You might say, what's the point in providing somebody with a good income on retirement if the society in which they live or the world in which we live is is not very pleasant anymore because of, of environmental changes? But I also think that if you're saying to trustees, you have to at least consider the impact of what you're doing on the environment or the wider community, then it might make them a bit worried about what the scope of their duty is and kind of what they need to prioritise in their thinking. We put that to them last week, actually, when we were writing up the story. Their response was that uh, essentially it won't add any extra confusion because people are already confused about what constitutes best interest anyway. Um, What would you say to that response? They say... They're seeking to clarify what's in members' best interests. I I have to say that when it comes to the question of what's financially material, I think there is quite a lot of clarity at the moment. I think that some trustees may be confused as to whether they can take account of ESG factors because they might be thinking of it more as sort of ethical concerns rather than necessarily things that might have a, a financially quantifiable impact. So I'm not sure that there is that much confusion. 
No, and they, that trustees, that is, they have recourse at the moment to existing law, don't they? The Law Commission's report in 2014 that set many of the standards here, am I right about that? Exactly. So the Law Commission set out in a very long paper details of what it thought trustees should be taking account of in this area and listed out financially material factors as being what trustees should take account of. And it also talks about non-financial factors and how those come into play. And there are sort of limited circumstances where the Law Commission report thinks that those can be relevant. And I, I think that if you're talking about sort of broader societal concerns, you might there be, be putting them more in the, the non-financial box than the financial box for, for trustees. Uh, also in aid of this, this story we were writing last week, we spoke to Stuart O'Brien at Sackers. Uh, he made the interesting point invoking this case that's going on in Australia at the moment with a lawsuit against one of its superannuation funds. Um, it's based, he says, on a, this standard that arguably it could be applicable over here already. You don't really need another new bill to strengthen trustees' fiduciary responsibilities. Actually, trustees' prudential tests already cover much of this area and there are grounds for action to be taken if they don't uphold them. Would you agree with Stuart that we might be seeing something similar to this Australian case over here at some point, or is the law a little bit too uh, different to allow for that? I think we absolutely could see something similar in the UK. I think that the changes that are coming through in the pension schemes bill already, in particular, are going to really strengthen trustees' obligations to think about this area and to make disclosures on really quite a a granular level. It's going to be a step change that affects the biggest schemes at first and and then some of the smaller schemes. And I think we could absolutely see that sort of claim coming out of that particularly. You know, if you can point to a piece of legislation that says you have to have policies on particular things and you have to report on particular things and you fail to do so, then your members may well hold you to account. Alison, if I could bring you in here, not not on the bill specifically, but perhaps on how public sector schemes and ESG operates more broadly. Quite often when I'm covering ESG as it crosses into public sector realms, you hear of all the good work being done by Brunel and others, you know, which are supposed to be really leading the way. Are public sector schemes ahead of private sector schemes when it comes to implementation of ESG, or are they broadly level? Uh, how is the view from the public sector? There is no question that public sector schemes or the LGPS, which is obviously the main one that has assets, have been looking at this over a number of years. And there has been you know, huge pressure for those schemes to do more in relation to, to ESG factors. And the, the way in which that they, they are set up, uh, and in particular sort of the new governance arrangements, which came in a few years ago, which now mean that they have to have equal, broadly equal representation on p- local pensions boards, between member representatives and employer representatives and you know we've seen some of the unions being very active in this space in terms of bringing some of the ESG concerns to the committees who are the ones that make decisions in relation to the LGPS so there is definitely been a lot of work being done uh, and even where some of the legislation doesn't directly apply I think you know the the disclosure of information you know the, the task force on climate related financial disclosures I don't think that technically applies to the LGPS but a number of funds are already on a voluntary basis reporting in line with that framework we've got a number 
who are very much taking into account of portfolios in light of the Paris Agreement, for example. There's been a lot with Extinction Rebellion and others. There's been a real focus on divestment, you know, out of carbon and all that. I think our view would be that actually it's much more beyond that and you need to be thinking about engagement with companies and it would be a shame if things were as narrow as just looking at which companies we should invest in. So we are seeing a lot more happening and it's it's not quite the same thing uh, but a few years ago when local authorities were given more objectives in relation to public health there was a lot of discussion and debate about investment in tobacco and whether that was appropriate for LGPS funds and I think there was a QC's opinion taken at that time which said that local authorities could take into account wider considerations such as public health as long as it didn't risk material financial detriment. So I think from that point of view, potentially you could argue that the public sector has been ahead of the the private sector just by the very nature of what public authorities are actually involved in in and their overall objectives. Well, with the amount of money I used to invest in cigarettes, the tobacco industry ought to be able to survive. Even the most stringent investment policies, sadly for them, though, I've quit. So that's a pretty devastating blow to their income streams, uh, whatever happens. Right. On that note, I think we will move on to our final topic. I think I heard the words pension schemes bill mentioned a little while ago. Uh, the Scottish National Party MPs mentioned in our introduction, they've tabled an amendment to the pension schemes bill, which they say would solve the Section 75 conundrum that sees small employers saddled with potentially crippling debts. Anna, as our resident legal expert, could you begin by explaining the problem to us and maybe we can move on to the proposed solution? What is this Section 75 problem? So uh, section, section 75 says that if an employer that participates in a pension scheme stops employing active members of that scheme at a time when other employers continue to do so, then a debt will be triggered that's payable by that employer and it's equal to its share of the liabilities in the scheme calculated on a particularly expensive basis as though as though you went and secured a proportion of the benefits from the scheme with an insurance company. So what it's meant where there are employers participating in the scheme who perhaps are unincorporated associations and particularly sort of one-man bands really participating in multi-employer uh, industry-wide pension schemes is that when that individual comes up to retire and they draw their pension, they as employer are stopping employing people in in active service in that scheme and a debt is triggered and they get, at the same time they get their pension, they'll get a bill from the scheme for their share of of the the deficit. And as I understand it, this, this SMP amendment sets out four conditions and if they were all satisfied, then that might allow trustees to exercise discretion in their dealings with said employers, potentially allowing small employers not to incur these debts. Is that right? Yeah. So the first is that the employer should be an unincorporated uh, entity, so not a company, effectively. They must have already triggered their debt before the change comes into effect. And the, the debt that has been triggered must be less than half a percent of the total liabilities of the scheme. And the last criteria is that the trustees must think that it's not in the interest of the scheme as a whole to sort of pursue this debt. So there is an element of discretion built in there already. And would you be confident that this is enough to solve the problem? Would you be confident this this amendment would be sufficient to solve the problem or would there still be some members outstanding who who could use some help themselves? Well, it, it would solve the problem for people who've already retired and who've been surprised by this. 
I think for people who are still in that position and are just members pension schemes, then it doesn't really solve the issue because they would retire after the change has been made. And I'm not sure that any of the other easements available in relation to Section 75 would enable them to do anything about their debt at this stage. But I think they're also, you know, I know this has been proposed in relation primarily because of issues arising in relation to one scheme, but there are sort of wider implications. There are people operating in, in other industries and who are members of other schemes for whom this would be relevant as well. And uh, for those who aren't covered, are there likely to be any further measures to expand the protections afforded by this amendment, uh, or is this as much as we're going to get? Uh, my understanding is there's sort of no plans to extend this any further. So um, for the time being, I, I would imagine this is it. Fair enough. I think then that brings us to the end of the programme. Thank you both to Alison and Anna for joining me. There is, of course, always a pensions angle, but that does not necessarily mean we are always able to find the always a pensions angle. That section will, we hope, return in the next episode. In the meantime, if any listeners do find a good story, uh, preferably as dirty and salacious as possible, rest assured we want to hear it. So get in touch via email and I'll do my best to work it into the next episode. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. Remember to like subscribe and share the podcast like a virus no vaccine could fix and we will see you in two ish weeks time hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.